0: While Vanessa Gould worked on her film Between the Folds, a documentary on the art of origami, she grew close to one of her subjects, Eric Choisel, a master of paper folding, an artist at the peak of his abilities.
1: He was at that moment at the height of his creative output and was doing work that really was breaking boundaries.
2: Paper is complexity. Uh, creation with paper is complexity. But I think that many folders could not really define why they choose origami.
1: He was thinking along lines that no one else had had sort of achieved in terms of how you can manipulate a two-dimensional piece of paper in 3D.
0: Two years after the film's release, Eric Joisel died of lung cancer. He was only 53 years old.
1: When he passed away, I knew, I knew it was going to happen for about a year. What I didn't anticipate was the feeling of the void that was left creatively or artistically in his absence.
0: While Vanessa mourned all the work that Eric would never create, she worried over his legacy as well. How would he, his ideas, and all the art he'd created be remembered?
1: He was a pretty reclusive, solitary man living outside of Paris uh, in a barn without, without many resources. And so I felt this sort of instantaneous fear that his legacy would sort of evaporate pretty quickly with time and that there was nothing in the universe really that was in place to help us remember him and what he had contributed to the world.
0: Vanessa took it upon herself to try and memorialize her friend. And in the process, she was drawn toward another art form, one that would become the subject of her next film.
1: I contacted probably two dozen newspapers around the world with a brief biography of him and some photographs of his work. The only newspaper that wrote me back was the New York Times. The, the writer that called was Marguerite Fox. I just couldn't stop thinking about the feeling that I had while we were going through that. And his memory at that point in my mind was still really fresh. We spent about two hours on the phone and she asked me an amazing stable of questions about his life.
0: Eric was alive in her memory, but the facts of his life, which is what the New York Times wanted, eluded her.
1: And I had a terrible time trying to put together the most fundamental details of his life. They were concerned with whether he graduated from college and which college it was and did he have any kids. But at the exact same moment she was asking me those questions, she was also contextualizing his life in a grand scale of almost thinking of the 20th century and how does he fit in the scope of the recent past, proving his worthiness as an obituary subject that we can either choose to remember or forget.
0: But even in the act of trying to ferociously remember... Something is always lost. At
1: the end of the day, I was never able to find some of the answers to those questions. Maybe that's part of the impulse of the obituary writers, too, the the, the sort of adrenaline of like, catch this fleeting, the smoke that's left in their wake before it dissipates.
0: Out of the roughly 56 million people who die each year, the New York Times writes about 1,000 to 1,200 obituary articles.
1: And I sort of see the obits as in sort of a pointillistic way where, you know, with those thousands, you can sort of start to make out the cultural landscape on a whole. Like they just, um, each person contributes enough so that we can start to really see ourselves in the result.
0: In today's episode, Letters to the Dead, we explore what cultural landscape do we create by who we choose to remember And how, in the art of the obituary, I'm Jaren Smickey, and welcome to Memory Motel. I
3: just can't remember. I remember. Can't
2: remember. I remember even. I do remember. He said this. He
0: said those
3: stories were the essence of what it was to be alive.
4: Can you trust that?
0: If you're one of the selected few to have an obituary article written about you, it's free for your family because it's news. If you're not one of the select few, here's how the average slub pays to be remembered.
4: Thank you for calling the New York Times Classifieds Department. To help serve you better, please listen to the following menu options. To place a new ad, a paid death notice, or an in memoriam... Please press 1. Good afternoon. Thank you for calling the New York Times Classifieds. Christine speaking. How may I help you?
0: Hi, my name is Terrence Mickey, and I'm calling to inquire about an obituary.
4: What information were you looking for that I could possibly help you with?
0: Okay. I'm a big procrastinator, but I'm going to die at some point, so I just want to be prepared. And how does one go about ordering an obituary in the New York
4: Times? Well, what we actually do is they're generally emailed over to us. The notices they started is a four-line minimum. On each line is approximately 26 characters per line. The first four lines is a starting rate of $263, and then each additional line thereafter is $52 per line.
0: Is there a maximum
4: amount? Uh, It is a maximum of 240 lines, and that's approximately $13,000.
0: Great. And, and I can write whatever I want about
4: myself. Right, as long as it's, it's within standards, correct. Okay,
0: thank you very much.
4: No problem at all. You're welcome.
0: In the U.S., a person pays for a death notice, which is costly and limited by a restrictive word count. Here's a paid death notice from the New York Times, working wonderfully within constraints. Levinson, Samuel. 92, cranky and cheap, but we loved him anyway. Devoted husband of tin, athlete, fun to be with, loved his family, astronomy, classical music, and WNYC. Never bought a golf ball in his life. Multitasker. Could sew, clean, and yell at you all at the same time. Collector of rubber bands. Will be missed by entire family. He would think this obituary the biggest waste of money. At today's rate, that obit would have cost roughly $810. You may find a bargain at another paper or on Legacy.com, but there will always be a cost and similar limitations. Unless you drop dead in Iceland. In Iceland, it's very, very different.
2: Most nations, they focus on celebrities only. Um, And we can kind of get away with, anybody being in the paper and anybody having an obituary and, and anyone having a funeral announcement because there are only 320,000 of us to begin with. It's it's such a part of our culture, like an automatic thing, that people, it's just what's done.
0: That's Nana, an Icelandic writer with a column in the Reykjavik grapevine called Don't Ask Nana. She reluctantly offers advice to people visiting Iceland. Here's one of her helpful videos on how to handle Icelandic polar bears.
2: If you encounter a polar bear in Iceland, turn to the person next to you and then stab them in the leg and run away.
0: I thought she'd be a reliable source on Iceland's obsession with obituaries.
2: So the Icelandic word for obituary is Mininkakrin. and that means um, a memory article. And I remember being in my grandmother's and my grandfather's apartment and they would read the obits, and they would talk about anybody who they knew who had died. Just saying the name out loud, you know, like reading out who, who had passed away you know, to each other.
0: The Icelandic obituaries are printed free of charge in the popular newspaper Morgonblad. Can you say that one more time? Morgonblad. Morgonblad. It
2: actually means the morning paper. That is the direct translation.
0: The obituaries take up, on average, four to six pages of the 40-page paper. It's not unusual to have several obits for the same person. And beside the basic biographical information, people remember the dead with specific memories. And if you ask any Icelander, no matter what their age, they probably read them religiously. And, to make death even cooler in Iceland, Sugarrós did a cover of the theme music played during death announcements on Icelandic radio. The tradition of obituaries is tied to a deep connection to the past. Every square inch of Iceland is storied. The highways are built around rocks where fairies once lived. A myth lies behind the name of every waterfall and fjord and hot spring. My obsession with Iceland started with an old man who, after he learned I was a writer, handed me a worn copy of Independent People by Halder Loch the Icelandic Nobel Prize-winning novelist. But the tradition has changed as Iceland balances the past with the present, and a collective history with a personal one.
5: In my home, we would get three sets of different papers. And uh, so you would have a whole lot of papers to go through. And the obituaries, as as I remember it, uh, were one of the main things that people would read. That's
0: Anar Arnason. He grew up in Iceland and studied social anthropology. And growing up, did you, as a young person, read the obituaries?
5: Yeah, yeah. And and the people around me most definitely did. Uh, my parents, my grandparents, my uncles and my aunties. Uh, in general, just people around, yeah, absolutely would read them. Of course, people read them to some extent because they, they they do expect to perhaps find somebody there that they will know.
0: In 2003, he and two colleagues published a paper titled Letters to the Dead.
5: For us, it really began with, with, with what David had, had done. And uh, We were all very taken by the
6: paper he had written. People read them. People really read them. And, And they write them for knowing that people are going to read them.
0: David is David Kester, another anthropologist, who moved to Iceland in 1984 on a Fulbright scholarship to study historical consciousness.
6: Historical consciousness in Iceland was the general topic for the Fulbright. Studying what people think about their past as opposed to what the past was, I thought, why not go to the place where they call themselves the history people. Do, do it where it's obvious. I was living with an old couple. They were both retired, and the old, every morning the woman would sit drinking coffee in her bathrobe till about 11 o'clock. She loved to talk, and it was great for me. I was learning about Iceland, and I was getting it from an Icelander, and she would always go to the obituaries and tell me about different people. I explained to her many times what my project was about. She said, if you want to know about history, this, you have to read these. She said, there's, there's history in this. And so I started reading them.
0: Here's a brief history of Icelandic independence.
5: The history that you were taught was a glorious beginning of Icelandic society in the Viking era during the settlement, leading to this terrible fall and the sort of cultural degradation and humiliation that follows on from that through the centuries of foreign rule.
0: From 1262 until 1380, they were ruled by Norway. And then Iceland became part of the Kammar Union with Sweden and Denmark, which meant Denmark ruled them until independence was granted in 1918. Finally, the Icelandic Republic was formed in 1944. Here's an R on the importance of that struggle for independence.
5: Independence is something so precious. It's really kind of key to the continuing survival of the nation, and it's recapturing what had been lost but also the survival of Icelandic culture and, and language. The traditional obituary placed in that history, so it becomes a sort of a contribution to the uh, collective progress of the nation. The Icelandic nation and all its members share in some kind of a collective fate, having achieved independence.
6: Um, and so, this was the obituaries were a way to actually say. This is the way in which a life is positioned in Icelandic history at this moment.
0: David's research shows us what a formidable document the traditional obituary is.
6: It would have been possible to write a manual for writing an Icelandic obituary.
0: So I'll break it down into seven steps. You start with the name and photograph of the deceased. Step two, a characterization of the deceased, which includes their constitution, what they look like, their intellect and abilities, whether they could tell good stories or were good with numbers, and a character disposition, whether they were upright, conscientious, generous, hospitable. The third step, the author presents the life history or resume of the deceased. The fourth step is a personalized recollection of milestones from the life of the deceased. The fifth step is a condolence to the remaining family members. The sixth step, a farewell to the deceased sending them off, and the final step, step seven, gratitude for the time that the living had with the dead. The author of obituaries were not immediate family members, but people twice removed. The audience was the general public.
6: And so the obituary, is it's kind of a, an event that helps to move the deceased to his or her new status. I think that it totally made sense to the Icelanders what I had written. It was enough of, of a solid study that they they found that it was something that they could recognize a shift.
5: I mean, his, his paper is published not long before the obituary writing starts to uh, really change.
0: Shortly after David's research was published, Anar and his colleagues noticed the form becoming something remarkably different.
5: Uh, the, the, the people in the, of the newspaper The people there were very aware that the obituaries were one of the key selling points.
7: I would say 15 years ago, we decided that the links had become an obstruction because uh, there were so many articles that we couldn't print and people were waiting for the articles to appear. And we decided that something had to be done so that we could do this to everyone's satisfaction. That's Carl. My name is Karl Plantal, i I'm deputy editor of uh, the Icelandic newspaper Morgumdall in Iceland.
5: An issue for the paper was always that uh, uh, they, they got so many obituaries sent to them uh, and they take up space.
7: The, the length is uh, 3,000 characters with spaces. Uh, at times, this has been hard for people to deal with. We tried to point out that this is free of charge and by uh, restricting the length, we are giving more people the opportunity to write about those who have passed away. It used to be that these were uh, simply articles where people would talk about the career of uh, the deceased and uh, uh, and the deceased family tree. But the thing was that we had a person who took care of the obituaries, and that person retired. And the the one who took over decided to relax the rules a bit.
5: The obituaries were becoming far more emotional in content and, and language So the people at the paper told us that uh, they had received obituaries written in this kind of a way before, but they had always resisted it because they didn't think it was appropriate. What we noticed then was that that, uh, it was becoming quite common that uh, a child would write about their parent, even a parent about their child, a husband about a wife, and a wife about a husband, and so on and so forth. So that kind of obituaries emerging that uh, were quite different.
8: About 16 years ago when I was in rehab, I met this warm and open woman, Erla Stefansdóttir. Uh, Erla and I became very good friends quite fast. We could talk about everything between
5: heaven The newer form really kind of focuses on the individual experience. Of the, uh, ...of the very person.
8: Even needs to learn. I always remember when Ertla had a concert when I was in Reykjelundur.
7: This is something that the priests even recommend to those who are grieving, to write about the deceased and uh, to deal with one's memories. A summer
8: house, ...which is always very nice, and we would go there, my dad and Ertla, very often around...
0: Where once people identified with a collective whole struggling for independence, they now are individuals grieving other individuals.
8: Tragically, she was diagnosed with cancer this summer and heroically fought it. She lost, only 65 years old. It comforts me that she believed in life after death. Her children, Svantis, Stefan and Baldwin, and all the grandchildren are all lovely and warm like Alta was. It's always very hard to say goodbye. And for us that knew her, miss her frequently.
0: In the late 90s, the paper ultimately allowed for people to write and print personal letters to the dead. As part of their grieving process and remembrance of their loved ones, considering that one out of ten Icelanders will publish at least one book, and the country values literature, these letters are carefully crafted.
5: Some of these are, you know, are very powerful and beautiful pieces of literature, actually, and uh, that there are some of these notepapers written as, as letters that are really absolutely stunning. Deeply, deeply moving and hugely powerful.
6: There is a sense in Iceland also of, of recognition of skill in, in using the language. People really appreciate it when the language is used well. If someone was really
5: well-written, people would talk about that. There is, there is one in particular that uh, not just myself, but many people have, have talked about. And actually, it's, it's, it is one of the newer ones. Now, maybe... It's only 15 years ago that it appeared. But it's a, it's a mother writing after a child that had died. Um, undeniably, this was a very beautifully written and a powerful piece. It, it, that was moving, just
6: because after you've, after you've read all these, you know what it means to accumulate a life, you know what it means to, and then what does it mean for somebody to write one for a four-year-old? The form doesn't fit. There's no education, there's no moves. And so it makes it all the more poignant because it was a life, it was somebody who everybody's grieving for, but it just, the life doesn't fit the model.
7: People who are writing these, these are very personal. And I think you should allow people to uh, give people as much leeway as they can to do this, you know, the way they want to do it.
8: I mean, I guess it is pretty precious that we have that. I don't feel the need to look at this right now. I may in the future, especially now that I know it's, it's like right there. It's a little piece of piece of memory right there.
0: If we remember Vanessa's analogy of a pointillist image where a thousand obituaries somehow give us the cultural landscape. Perhaps what we get when every point is included and we get an exact mirror of a place, is not a landscape, but individual stories and the small, intimate details of a singular life.
2: You can kind of guess what, you know, famous people have done, or you already are acquainted with what famous people have done. Everybody knows all the cool stuff that Prince has managed to pull off in his life. When you're reading the obit of a regular person, you're connecting with somebody. There's often... Stories there that you wouldn't expect, and I think I think you get that from from obituaries of regular people.
3: The shortest one I've ever read was for Doug Legler. Now this is the truth. It reads simply, "Doug died."
0: K. Powell is a champion of regular people, but as a retired obituary writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She's wary of American civilians who do not have the literary pedigree of Icelanders, writing obituaries for family and friends. Here's what can happen when remembering the dead falls into the hands of non-professionals.
3: Instead of saying somebody was born August 10, 1926, his obit tells us that Mr. Maceo Antonio Horn Jr.'s Nascent Advent Upon the Global Spectrum of Humanity, commenced on August 10, 1926. Now, why use one word when mine will do? That was a family-written obit. And as a reporter, I just told you somebody died. And this is why I consider the family-written obit an American folk art.
0: As an obituary writer, Kay has to follow a strict style when reporting the news. But she empathizes with the universal desire to remember.
3: I had been told from the beginning that the hardest thing I was going to have to do was tell people, no, we are not going to be able to write an obit on your day.
0: Kay tried her best to level the playing field of remembrance.
3: One criticism of newspaper obits historically is They write too many about men, and they write too many about fellow journalists that nobody else knows, and we did a lot working on that. We did a lot to up the coverage on the minority communities within this larger metropolitan community, so we kept it very broad-based. For most of the people we wrote on, it was the first and only time their name would be in the paper. It is also a permanent object that the family can hold in its hands, can put in the family Bible, can blow up and mount on easels when everybody's coming in to the funeral. It's part of grieving, it's part of memorializing, it's part of family history. They think whoever in their family has died was special. And here is a newspaper recognizing that also, and they want to share that. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, it makes perfect sense. We all want to matter, to be remembered, which is why I plan to make friends with a lot of Icelanders and move there after my first heart attack.
3: Readers of the newspaper, in our everyday lives, no more extraordinary, ordinary people. Than we do celebrities and politicians. And at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we created a very democratic obituaries page. We found that fascinating story in each person we wrote about. And say, you know, we've never written on a Kmart greeter. Um, Everybody encounters them when they go to that store, but they don't know the story behind them or... We've never written about somebody that prices groceries. Everybody goes to the grocery store and buys groceries, but they don't know anything about the people that are pricing those groceries for them. Let's write on him. Well, it turns out that the grocery store pricer collected prize-winning, show-quality skunks and had his favorite skunk airbrushed onto his motorcycle. At first, the funeral homes, other reporters in the newsroom, and families did not understand this new kind of daily obit that we were writing. As time passed, people began to understand what we were doing and loved the obits daily. I think one of the highest compliments I got was when I heard another reporter talking to one of his sources, and he said, Yeah, yeah, that Kay Powell. I know, she's made obits a destination in this paper. And so slowly people began to understand what we were doing and love it. That made readers feel more connected with the paper. It made them feel ownership in the paper. It created a sense of community. So it moved people in the community to act in various ways. It made them feel a sense of connection as a community. One woman who was killed on her way to work, we wrote the obit article for her. At visitation that night at the funeral home, a stranger approached her husband, slipped him a business card and said, when you have a minute, I want to talk to you. And of course, your mind first goes to ambulance chaser or what does this guy want? Why is he here? But anyway, the husband took time to talk to the stranger. And the man told him, he said, you don't know me and I didn't know your wife. But when I read her obituary in the paper today, I knew I had seen that wreck happen. And I knew I had to be here tonight to tell you. I think she died instantly. She was not in any pain. And I am available for you to ask any question you need to that I can answer. Now, in a town of millions of people, that is a very small town, neighborly thing to do. And that was one thing we wanted to do, was create that sense of community. And I think
0: that man shows that we did in that instant. For Kay, obituaries not only connect us to who we've lost, but to what remains for the living, our connection to each other. Remembering the dead is not really about death after all. It's about life. After hearing the price of a Times Death Notice and realizing I have a lot to say about myself, I may have to save up Before I die, I'll be creating a Kickstarter campaign for my death notice fund. Details to come. Thank you for listening to another episode of Memory Motel. We'd love your feedback, so please leave a review on iTunes. Letters to the Dead was produced by me, Terrence Mickey and Bart Walshaw, who composed the theme music, with assistance from Carrie Ann Thomas. For this episode, I've come across a wealth of names I cannot pronounce. And as to not disrespect anyone and their heritage, I'm using only first names for my big thank you. A big thank you to Vanessa. Please check out her films, Obit and Between the Folds. Nana, check out her column, Don't Ask Nana, in Reykjavik Grapevine. David and Anar, both of their studies can be found online. Carl from Morkenbladet. Morkenbladet. Edla, who graciously read her grandmother's obituary. And Kay, whose obits can be read on the archives of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And thank you for the support, Jerome, Marie, and Jeffrey. Please subscribe to Memory Motel on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The next episode will tackle the fallibility of memory in the court system. Until next time, I can't wait to see what you find
6: when you go back.